Hello, and welcome to the WorkWell podcast. The World Health Organization has identified the workplace as a priority area for health promotion. Why then does the word work have such a negative and unhealthy connotation for so many people? Think about it. We spend so much of our adult lives at work. Why should it be in a role or in an environment that doesn't support our health and well-being? My name is Brian Crook, and I'm on a mission to make workplaces more positive places to be and to make our working day as healthy and productive as possible. Join me on the Work Well podcast as I interview workplace well-being thought leaders and industry professionals to discuss how employers, employees, and entrepreneurs can lead the way by creating and sustaining the healthy, safe, and well workplaces of the future. Welcome back to the show. Men's health. It's an area that doesn't always get the attention it deserves. Men are less likely to get involved in well-being activities, certainly in workplace well-being activities, unless it's something really macho. Men are also less likely to visit their GP or to speak up if something isn't right. So today's guest, Adrian Yates, is giving a voice to men's health. Notwithstanding a long history of depression and anxiety, Adrian has worked successfully in several industries and at all management levels, including CEO. In addition to his Lizado business, where he avidly advocates for positive mental health, he is a board director of the mental health charity AWARE and is an ambassador with Sea Change. Sea Change, whose mission is to work positively to reduce the stigma and discrimination associated with mental health problems. So it's a great conversation. I know you're going to learn a lot from it. So let's get straight into my chat with Adrian Yates. Adrian, hello and welcome to the Work Well podcast. Hi, Brian. Delighted to be here. Pleasure to chat to you. Tell us, Adrian, how are you? How's life? How's work for you at the moment? I have to say uh, I'm feeling great, very well, and uh, thankfully busy at work. One of the things now that's uh, actually quite nice is that myself and my wife, Liz, we're working from home uh, now, I suppose, like a lot of people that may be listening in. We have three, we call them children, but they're all in their 20s. And they've flown the coop. So uh, our eldest is in Dublin, but he, he moved out a year ago. And then our middle daughter, she moved to Spain three years ago. And she actually came home on Saturday for the first time in two years. So it's fantastic to have her home. And uh, we're the new family now. I've uh, My youngest is in Chicago. She's doing an Erasmus over there. So we're going to be gathering together physically and virtually and people from all over the world. So I think it's kind of the new normal. But uh, yeah, no, so it's great. Absolutely. Yeah. And Mr. How have you found the last two years? How has work been? How has you know, working from home, managing all of that? How has that been? For most people, you know, it's been a struggle at times. I'd be very honest to say that because I suppose the key element that COVID brought was this uh, huge amount of uncertainty. And I think that's the biggest struggle most people have is, you know, when you don't know really what's around the corner. You know, I think there was kind of almost a bit of an excitement in uh, 2020 when the T-shirt said, oh, we're going to be shutting down things. And we were all thinking this maybe last a few weeks. And, you know, sure, it's a bit different. Via told us then, or we knew that we'd still be dealing with it now in 2022. I think we would have looked at it completely differently. You know, it's put a huge amount of pressure on organizations. My case, the work that I do has always been face-to-face. 
I'd never heard of Zoom or Teams two years ago. So it's very, very different. So it took a bit of a while to get used to that. And then, you know, getting set up from home and connections and broadband and the, the extra few hassles that come in there. But I think for most people, to use that phrase that's bandied around all the time, until you get your head around what's going on, I think it was very, very difficult for people. And then to see like the physical negative side and hearing about the deaths and the number of cases day after day, I think it was quite traumatic on a lot of people. And then the social connection, the lack of that. And then for older people or people who are on their own, not getting visits, no phone calls, whatever, you know, I think that was very, very tough. I think it's been hard on everybody. But then there's a few positives that I'm sure we, we get on to talk about later on. But uh, yeah, it hasn't been easy is the, the simple answer. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Very, very well said. Bring us up to speed on the career, if you would, Adrian, because it's been a really interesting one. You were 20 years, if I'm not mistaken, in Volvo Ireland and almost five of those as the MD. You're involved in quite different work now. Maybe bring us up to speed on that background. Yeah, well, you're only at the tip of the iceberg, I'm afraid. I have to show my age now. (laughs) I actually did a degree in international marketing and languages at DCU. And I had my first job. I started for work in 1986, believe it or not. So uh, I'd say about 80% of the people online <laughs> won't have been born by then. But I worked in uh, Xerox in, in a sales role to start with. And then I wasn't really using my German. So I joined an Irish company, but was actually owned by a German that was in the beef trade. I worked in the marketing department. We were looking to bring a beef product, a steak, a staking product from Ireland to the German supermarkets. So that was great. But I had to travel a lot and I was away from home. Um, my wife Liz, she was in banking at the time and she got a job offered in the head office in Amsterdam. It was Dutch Bank. So because I'd been traveling so much, I said, sure, we both had done the German. So we figured we'd pick up Dutch or whatever. So we moved to Holland in 1990. And that's when I started in the car business. So I joined Nissan Europe, the European headquarters for Nissan. It had just moved to the Netherlands in 1990. So that was brilliant. We were living there. She was on expat terms. I got my job with Nissan. We were expecting our first kid in 1995. So as the fella said, we were on the pig's back, except I was feeling miserable. And I had this whole sense of dread, like from the outside in, everything was perfect. But it was actually my first real experience of mental illness. And I didn't really know what was going on. I was actually diagnosed at that point. It was 1994 with depression. And I think my situation was exacerbated by uh, self-stigma because the office had moved from Tokyo and it was mainly Japanese managers. And, you know, it was quite macho and male. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, if they think there's something wrong with my head, I'm out the door and then I'm going to lose my job and then I'm going to lose my house. And I went into a whole uh, catastrophe. Anyway, I got help, which was great. But unfortunately, I had a relapse a couple of years later. And we decided in 1996 to come back home. And I personally was delighted with that because I had applied and got the job with Volvo. And I was thinking, I'll come to Ireland. We have two kids now. Nobody knows my track record. So it was all this thing about hiding. So I started in January 97 with Volvo and I was off work sick in that September. So uh, that was a real heavy hit to me. Because I thought I'd ruined my chances, of, if you know what I mean. But the good thing is, and the message I'd like to get across to people is, getting the appropriate support and treatment for any mental illness means recovery is more than possible. It's actually likely. And what it means is you can live your normal life and work to your own uh, potential to the point that, as you say, I was appointed to MD in uh, 2012.
Well, I think this is what's so important about the conversation we're having now, because, you know, you're going back nearly 30 years. There was no support is basically the, the, the answer. So most of the help that I got was outside. Unfortunately, you know, we often talk in terms of the mental health continuum. Most people are kind of managing. We all have stress and pressures and so on, and we're anxious from time to time, but that's life, isn't it? It's when your situation gets to the point that you're not able to cope. You're finding it difficult with uh, decision-making, with relationships and so on. And there's this lack of capacity or competency that comes in that you obviously want to hide. So mostly at work, I was trying to hide what was going on. And then outside, I was trying to look for what can I do about this? One of the areas that I got a lot of help from when I came back home to Dublin was through Aware, their online service, peer-to-peer supports, even the information about a condition. See, a lot of people, they have very simplistic views and always negative about mental illness. And the idea of actually going and find out what is anxiety, what is depression, what is bipolar, it it takes a lot of the fear out of it and a lot of the misunderstandings. And that's where I think the work of challenging stigma comes in. It's to really, when you hear situations like that, to be able to stand up and say, hang on a minute, I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's right. There's another way you could say it or whatever it might be. So unfortunately for me at the time, there were very limited supports. But I, you know, I see a huge change now, even in the last 10 years, it's just been fantastic. A lot of organizations now have their own internal employee assistance programs. You know, there's lots being done in terms of well-being with um, programs throughout the year. So not just one hit wonders, but this tick box exercise of, oh, let's do something on mental health. There's actually a red thread going through it. And even like you have people now being called the chief people officer or you have welfare and well-being managers, a whole network of well-being individuals. So right through the organizations, that it's not all just top down. I kind of wish I was born 20 years later and I might have had to go through a lot of what I had. Even though you knew it was how challenging it could be to raise this or to bring this to the surface, you were still able to do it, even with the little, the lack of support you felt that was out there. How did you feel comfortable enough to do that? Most people in your situation would have just kind of shut up and got on with it, wouldn't they? Yeah, they would. And I think that's to a degree the motivation why I did do it, because I was very secretive about it for so long. When I came to the end of my time with Volvo, because normally the MD role is, is between five and seven years. So I started thinking about, you know, what I might do going forward. And I was in, coming into my 50s then. And it was kind of like, I got to be careful about what I decide to do, because I could just jump ship and go into the same thing again, just with a different brand. But I did a thing called an outplacement program, which is where I went to a specialist agency who they kind of do uh, recruitment, but they also do a lot of focus on you as an individual and not just from your competency side but more importantly about what motivates you. So they actually go very deep into your beliefs and your values. And what came out of that for me was that, you know, I had a strong EQ, emotional intelligence, and that, you know, people development was very, very important for me all through my career. And I'm thinking, well, sure, what can I do with that? Because two or three years ago, there was no such thing as workplace well-being. So that's really when that started off, I'm thinking, yeah, I can do that. But How am I going to make it relevant, authentic and realistic for people? And that's where, you know, I decided, well, maybe if I start talking about, because again, you have a lot of celebrities out there who talk about their mental history and so on. And it's very inspiring. And I think I often compare those guys to like icebreakers in the Arctic. You know, they're the big ships that come in and smash up the big deals of ice. But then you need the little ships coming in behind. And that's where I see my role is that, you know, sometimes people think they get a trigger from listening to some of these celebrity type mental health advocates. 
But then they don't see a relatability. You know, they say, oh, well, that's easy for them because A, B and C. And it's not, by the way. But conventional wisdom is it must be easier for them. So I kind of felt like if I put myself forward then, particularly in terms of men's health, because men typically don't open up as much as our female counterparts. We don't talk seriously about personal and intimate issues. And often that vulnerability about being able to show your feelings and your emotions stereotypically is a weakness. And that's something you don't want to be. You know, big boys are strong. We don't cry. You know, we we get on with things and, you know, we take we, we take everything in our stride. And that's just not realistic anymore. And then particularly having worked in senior positions in organizations and having led a company, I'm trying to give people permission to say, not only is it okay not to be okay, not only is it okay to struggle from time to time, but actually I can get help for it, I can get support for it, and I can keep on doing what I've always done. So, you know, it's not life-limiting. To go back to your question, opening up about it, it's taking it out of the darkness and, you know, it's, it's shining a bit of light onto it and saying, this is normal. We all struggle. We all have health. We all have mental health, physical health, same way. From time to time, we just need a lift. So I thought if I could use myself, excuse the pun now with the car industry, but if I could use the organization I have, Lizado Services, as a vehicle to promote that, that's really what I wanted to do. I'm delighted that I've done it. One of the things I did was I joined a, an organization called Sea Change. They're Ireland's national organization for stigma reduction. It's just so rewarding, Brian, to be able to go into a time, go into a room full of people and tell your story. You're an ambassador now. Yeah, they have a fantastic whole array. We often just think about the common mental illnesses, but, you know, from eating disorders to uh, psychosis to schizophrenia and everything in between, they have people with lived experience who are prepared to talk openly about that experience so that people who are in that same position can see that there's hope for recovery and that you're not actually in a dark place you're never going to get out of again. So I love that work, um, you know, and it's so refreshing. And, you know, you get great feedback. People come back up to you, you know, and I mean, you kind of kind of, like at this stage now, I don't think it's anything special. I don't think I'm particularly brave. But I think where people have been hiding like I did and so afraid to put their head above the parapet in case it's going to be shot off them, I think it, it does give them that encouragement. Like you said, it's going to be a lot more relatable. If a celebrity, if an Olympian or a, a footballer, you know, kind of someone we know from the TV is saying this, is doing this, it, it is that little bit harder to relate, isn't it? Yeah. But if you're going in there and the other ambassadors, you're going into workplaces and just sharing your story, your lived experiences with the employees. I'm always careful to make the point. You need both. Mm. People just going in, you know, you need a certain amount. It's, called, it's almost like marketing. You need a kind of PR machine to get the subject up there and then you need somebody to carry the work on. So I think it works very well hand in hand. So, you know, I have, I have great uh, admiration for all of those people and anyone who's prepared to, you know, share their experience such that it would be of benefit to somebody else. Tammy, so you touched on the men's health point there, and I think it's a really important one, especially in the area of workplace well-being, workplace health promotion. It's more often than not, it's the women that are getting involved, you know, less men get involved. As you're kind of hinting at there as well, men are less likely to visit their GP, be proactive about their own well-being. They're certainly less likely to open up, put their hand up when something isn't right, and to be vulnerable, you're doing the work. How do, let's say, the HR leaders, the well-being leaders listening in, how do we encourage or what can we do to support men in, in workplaces, kind of maybe just to, to get involved a little bit more or maybe to, you know, to have a conversation? 
I think for me, the answer to that lies in, you know, when you're actually defining what the organizational needs are in terms of employee well-being. And sometimes senior leaders can think, oh, let's just do a survey of what's out there. What can we get and how much is it going to cost? But I'd actually advise people to actually sit back and have a think for themselves and say, I might be a senior leader, but I'm not impervious to um, all the issues that are going on out there. And my title or rank within the organization doesn't give me any extra protection against the slings and arrows that are there. So what would I need as a senior leader in the company? What would I need to support me? And then do a survey of the staff, you know, do a dipstick or whatever you want to call it. Because lots of organizations, like I said, nowadays, they have much more refined services than would have been around even like it's what, 2017, five years ago that I was at Nissan or Volvo. It's got so, so much better. And the thing about it is, is sometimes people feel gaps or they notice that things aren't as good as they would like them to be. So if you can approach the staff and say, this is what we're doing, what's missing or what would you like to see more of? What would you like to see less of? And engage. And this is important. So coming back to the males in the organization, I struggle sometimes with gender from the point of view is that I think it it takes the, the message away a little bit because like I say, we all have mental health. So if you have a program that's broadly based to support the overall organization. And then you might have within that survey a few extra little bits and pieces that men can do or similarly that women can do. But I'd also encourage that men do step forward to be part of the discussion. Because what I see now is a lot of the organizations that I talk to, and certainly from the feedback I got on podcasts that you've done with uh, some of your other guests, it's through the organization. It's not top down and it's not bottom up. It's actually a really good integration of both. And that's where I think, you know, rather than looking at purely gender based, there should be a peppering of people from different aspects of the organization. And the thing about it is most organizations, they're like us as individuals. They have their own foibles, they have their own brand, they have their own culture. They're reluctant to talk about a one size fits all. I really think it should be designed by the people for the people kind of thing. And within that, you should hoover up any particular needs for men within that. But it's hard to get them to voice that. And, you know, sometimes, again, if it's done as a kind of blind questionnaire, people are, can do it anonymously. Yeah, I think that that gets the message in there. So, you know, I, I definitely say that. But start from the inside, work out and talk to people. That's the best way. And I would say the more people that are comfortable and only if they're comfortable sharing their own story or talking about their own challenges, be they in senior leadership, which can help or, or just even spread throughout the organization, that can be a huge help also. Yeah, just to give a word back to Sea Change, one of the things they do is specific training on managing your own boundaries and what you're comfortable with sharing. And again, like it's very easy if you do a panel discussion and you're getting questions in off the floor and then people start to get interested. And then they ask you very specific questions, like maybe going into, you know, what's your treatment or what medication are you on and so on. And that's really a no-go area because what works for me won't work for you or may not work for anybody else. So you're not there as an advocate for particular treatments. It's about making the decision to actually go and get help. That's the key thing is to make the environment safe for people that they can reach out like in the workplace, whether it's that employee assistance program or whether there are other services available that can help people just to reach out 
And then, you know, it takes a life on of its own and you get then the appropriate help. It's not just, like I say, a, a sticking plaster off the shelf. It's designed yeah. specific for your own uh, situation. So, yeah, boundaries are very, very important. You're a sea change ambassador. You're still on the board of AWARE. Yeah. You also deliver mental health first aid training. Is that right? Yeah, I do uh, some freelance work to other like-minded organizations. And again, I just find there's been a great response in Ireland to supporting mental health and organizations taking it more seriously. And if I was to say one of the big upsides, if there are any to COVID, is that, you know, it's forced organizations to think slightly outside the box. Like you think about it now with remote working and all that sort of stuff that's something that probably would have evolved over time. So if I'm being very naughty now and say, if you start off with, go back 10 years, employee well-being was the bowl of fruit on reception and some funny design chairs that people could slouch around or a table tennis table in the middle of a meeting room. Do you know what I mean? And that was the genesis of it. What it was trying to do was just create space and give people an opportunity to disconnect for a while. And then it came into something much more formal. But I suppose as things develop, then you get the detractors who are saying, oh, that's all just nonsense. They just poo-poo the whole thing. But you can see that it's about actually tailoring the organization's output needs with the employee's ability to be there and be engaged. A lot of the bigger multinational organizations have embraced that. So I think it would have taken years before that would have been taken on by a lot of the other organizations in Ireland. But COVID forced that. And now we're seeing, you know, we're kind of at the other end of it now where organizations are looking to get people back into the office, struggling with that as well. So that's where, for me, the kind of freelance work came up with this company called Zevo Health, and they do a, a whole range of dedicated workplace wellbeing programs. So they have a number of pillars. So I work with them on their mental health pillar. So I give presentations around that as well. And I actually uh, was delighted to get involved with Mental Health for State Ireland because, you know, I think they've got an excellent program, which is kind of taken in from Australia. It's a very well researched, totally, how would you call it, uh, integrated program. It's 12 hours, so it's two full days of Mental Health First Aid. And even that in itself tells the story. You know, most organizations will have a health and safety officer or a first aid, a couple of people's trained in CPR, bits and pieces like that for a physical illness. So it's fantastic to think now that you can have individuals within organizations who are trained, who understand about mental illness, who understand the signs and symptoms and can then approach somebody who may be struggling and get them the help that they need. So they're not there to actually do the work of fixing the person, as we say, but it's putting them in touch with the right resource. And, you know, I think that's fantastic as well. And the more organizations that do that, again, the more normal it is to talk about mental health and well-being. So I think that's brilliant. So I'm delighted to be involved with both of those organizations. I like the training. I think it's great the more companies that can do that bring that kind of training into their organizations, the better. One concern I have is that some organizations I hear, let's say the senior leadership say, they've got mental health first aiders, they've got an EAP program, you know, they're done with mental health. It's all resolved. We're, we're fine because of we've X amount of people in mental health first aid and we have an EAP program. Any thoughts on how can we just support the mental health first aiders or whatever equivalent program how can we support those individuals within the organizations to make this an ongoing 
kind of support and help them to grow and develop in their role. Any any thoughts on that? Yeah. And I mean, you know, I think, again, when I started out in the area of workplace well-being in 2018, the biggest obstacle was how do you convince organizations that this actually has a benefit? And again, for most things, and certainly for me, I did it for many years as well. You do a very simplistic cost-benefit analysis. How much is that program going to cost us and what am I going to get for it? When finance get involved, some of the benefits are intangible in the sense that you can't put pounds, shillings and pence on them. Then it kind of becomes mm, not sure what the point of doing that is. But then I'd also you know, challenge and say that you could easily sit back and say, well, we did our sales target last month, so we don't have to do that in this month. It's done. Mental well-being and employee well-being, you can't put it in a box. It's on a continuum. It's there all the time. So if you're going to have employees, you need to support them all the time that they're there. So you can avoid that. And it's one of the things that I see is companies that haven't responded. And, you know, we're even going back to Darwin now. You know, the way that people say he came up with the strongest survive. The actual main thing he said was it's those who can adapt are the ones that survive. And organizations that are still trying to manage situations in a pre-COVID outlook, I think are really going to struggle because, you know, you will have heard and it's been um, reported in the media as well about the great resignation, the pause that COVID has given people to actually revalue what they're doing. Does it make sense for me to sit in a car for two hours each way, put my kid into a crash at 6 a.m.? And is there another way of doing this? You know, remote working has enabled people to integrate their lives much more with their work. That classic old adage of work-life balance you can't have work-life balance because the two are just totally interconnected now. So, you know, I really think that you got to have that long-term view. you got to have a constant. But I would actually be saying, and I'm sure this is why a lot of the companies that employ chief people officers, is that it has to become part of a strategy, part of the company culture. Because what makes one company different from the other? It's really about the people and you get a lot of, you know, you get your fancy posters about people being their greatest asset and all the rest of it. But how are you looking after those people? You know, would you treat the fleet of cars or trucks that you use without giving them maintenance and say, oh, we bought 20 trucks last year. So that's it. We're done. We don't need to have a mechanic in to have a look at them. Do you know what I mean? So if you look at it in those terms and then, like, I mean, the research is there now, particularly since uh, like COVID, like I said, and the change that I think most managers or senior leaders feared with remote work was the lack of supervision. So we're going to lose control here. The business is going to go down the tubes because they'll all be off dozen. The opposite has happened. Productivity has gone through the roof. Why? Because people can now work on their own terms. They can get the things they need to do in terms of work-life balance, the, you know, the personal things around that need to be done for them so that they're in the right mind space to be productive. Whereas sitting in a car or on a bus or a train for an hour or an hour and a half or two hours every day, it's a waste of everybody's time. So I really think that idea of some of the intangible benefits in terms of productivity really do need to be looked at. And for sure, knowing the younger audience that's out there as well, Kind of like when I was in the seat on the other side of the desk interviewing people, you're more likely to be interviewed as an employer now. What's your support on this? What's your view on that? How many days for this? How are you fixed about that? X, Y, and Z. And if they don't like the answers, 
they won't take the job. And that's why I'm saying if you don't change, you're going to perish because you'll find it hard to keep good people because they know what they want. It'll be interesting to see how it pans out, won't it, over the next couple of years. I was thinking about this, though. If people vote for Donald Trump, they'll also vote for or join an organization that you know has this really old school, rigid approach as well. So I think they will survive. But will other companies want to do business with them or how will it work? How will it pan out exactly? It'll be very interesting to see how things uh, pan out over the next couple of years. The only thing I'd say on that is, Brian, would you prefer to survive or flourish? Oh, yeah. Well, to thrive. I would love to thrive. There you go. <laughs> there you go. So that's the thing. Like They may just be able to tick the box. on, Like some of those older organizations, it comes back down to what the overheads are and the running costs of the business. Like. If they've got very low overheads, they can continue to return a profit without investing in their people, then they're happy to do that. But, you know, I'm thinking about organizations that actually want to grow and develop and move on so as to thrive, like you say. And that's a big difference. So I would prefer to be in the, <laughs> in the thriving department. <laughs> oh, me too. Me too. Yeah. What will the future of work or you know mental well-being in the workplace look like we have the program some programs now some companies are embracing it any thoughts you know in five years time will this be normal will this be kind of mandatory will there be chief well-being officers any any thoughts on what that might look like as the fellow said it's very hard to know in one regard because you know again unfortunately when we came into this year nobody thought that russia would attack uh, ukraine and that one move has now kind of trumped um <laughs> to pick your your last example the covid you know in terms of headlines now that's what everybody's talking about and that came out of nowhere but it's it's a global issue now particularly to do with the energy and so on so it's, it's hard to know with any great certainty what's going to happen next week let alone in five years time but certainly for me the trend would be that organizations need to be much more flexible and they need to integrate work life within the company and what that means is responding to those elements that their staff are telling them this helps me to do my job well this puts pressure on me and also that there's that kind of a safe culture within the organization so going back talking about the mental health for staters and so on so that you feel there's a safety net within the organization that you don't actually have to become very unwell before somebody will actually start to look after you when you begin to feel because you, you know yourself how you're, you're feeling and, you know, your, I suppose your well-being fluctuates on a daily basis. But there's a trend there. And if the general trend is, you know, I haven't been feeling great for the last week. It's so fantastic to know that you can reach out to somebody and have a confidential conversation, get some options. Yeah. So, you know, again, most of the, the good first aid support programs, they're not going to give you solutions because it has to be individual. But to know options, where can I go with this? What, how can I get help with that? So I think that's really going to be the feature. And then where you do your work from. So I think at the moment, without a shadow of a doubt, the hybrid approach seems to be the most likely to continue. And again, it's industry specific. Not all industries lend themselves towards it. But I think the key thing is the flexibility that you're not obliged to be in a specific place to do a job. If you're digging a hole, you have to be where the hole is. Okay, So if you, you work on the M50, you've got to be on the M50. But for people who are generally office-based with technology, you don't need to be in the office. But I think the, the, the power of the hybrid is the company needs to maintain that culture because for me, again, the culture is so important and um, that people need to feel they belong to something 
but there's a team spirit and there's a synergy that you can have when everybody's kind of pulling in the same direction. So that's really, really important. And then like in terms of well-being, what I'd like to say, say is, is that it is an integrated part of all the HR strategies within organizations, but the shape of it should change as situations change. So I think it should always be in flex, always being reviewed, integrated as part of like even like things like the, um, the annual appraisal. But that was the big thing for us, you know, for me uh, going through my working career. But more and more organizations have dispensed with the annual appraisal in terms of ongoing check-ins, sitting in having a one-to-one with each colleague, you know, what's working for you, what's not working for you, you know, less of a performance-driven one and much more getting behind to the person. And from that, if you then do that on an individual basis, department by department, you get fantastic data in for you know whoever is going to lead that program like i think it is going more away from hr and into people management and that they come up then with a new strategy for how they're going to deal with whatever's facing them so i do think it's here to stay without a shadow of a doubt as long as there's people in the organization you have to look after them absolutely yeah i'm interested to see there's one or two organizations talking about including let's say well-being metrics in their performance assessment whether it's annually or or more frequent. I'd love to see that. I'll be interested to see how that works. So like you said, it's not just performance, but you have a well-being target or two as well. And that goes back to your point on the importance of culture. Yeah. When you can have the fanciest, most expensive well-being program out there and fancy shiny offices getting in celebrity speakers. But if you're not practicing your behaviors, the norms, actions every single day, that are promoting and supporting a healthy work environment, you know, where people can put their hand up if something isn't right, or they're not, they're not overworked. They kind of have a say in their role, in their how their work is is shaped. You know, if you don't have that that foundation, then you're wasting your time. You're throwing money away on on these fan, on speakers and on, on programs. So it's back to the culture piece. I'd absolutely, hundred percent back that all day long. And I'd even go another step and say, you know, I'm not sure exactly. I suppose the struggle when you're not in a day to day corporate uh, environment. But what I would like to see, and what I had been thinking about while I was still in my last role, is conventional wisdom was people got promoted to a manager position and to a line responsibility based on their functional abilities. So if you were really good at your job, you were rewarded by being made manager or being made a VP or all these you know, great titles where you had a team working for you. There was no training or support for that role. And when you think about it, you're going in to manage other people, but you've actually been managing yourself and your own performance. And unless they're all clones of you, they're going to very be very hard to manage. So someone who approaches things completely different to you, you're going to want to make them like you. So I actually think organizations should have a proper induction process for people who are taking on line management responsibilities. And then that should also incorporate mental well-being. Everybody talks about their boss or, again, euphemistically, you hate here that people don't leave the company, they leave their boss. And that's very, very true. So you have such a pivotal role for the organization, but you may not be given the toolkit to deliver that. Or you're trading on your previous performance. That's what I'd like to see coming into organizations as well. That, As you say, then it puts it into the planning process as well and some of the metrics. What gets measured gets done. If you don't have a target, you're going to focus on what you do have a target for. So I think that's right. 
Well, it's an important point. The role of the line manager, again, is often overlooked yeah. in a workplace well-being programs and the importance of the relationship with your supervisor. That can have a huge impact on your, on your well-being in your role and how you get on in your role. So, so there's a lot to be said for it, Jess. Yeah. So watch that space with interest. You know, some kind of metric in there. The induction program is a good idea. I think for if not everyone's cut out to be a you know people manager. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Adrian, you're busy. You've got a lot on. How are you, or do you, who manage to spend time on your own well-being? Well, I think that's a brilliant question. And to be honest, one of the most important aspects to managing well-being is self-care. Again, often too many people think that that's the same as being selfish, but it's actually fundamental to your own ability to perform and your capacity to be able to help other people. So I often talk about the mobile phone and the battery and how we all panic when the, when the battery level goes on. But I mean, essentially, we work as a battery during the day, physical exertion, but then stress, deadlines, relationships, everything drains your energy. So it's up to each of us individually to restore that energy in some way, shape or form. And that's where self-care comes in. And that's why it's so important. That's what makes it not selfish. It's that I'm doing this so that I can be able to perform again or that I have sufficient resource on board that if I see someone else who's struggling, at least I have the wherewithal to go and do that and help them. So, you know, if I just run myself flat, I'm no use to anybody. We all know the, the oxygen mask example. If you don't put on your own oxygen mask, you're, you know, you're not going to be able to help anybody else around you. So I think it's absolutely fundamental. I do a number of things for myself that I think is really important. And like the first thing is to actually include it as a daily routine. And I think often, you know, we're also used to doing fads and we will do our couch to 5K and tick that box and then go back to the way we were. So I think, you know, real self-care is you get, de-energize during a day so you've got to re-energize either that evening or, or the next morning or in some way or you're going to be in trouble so i know you're a, a physical exercise guru so i'm not going to lock horns with you on, on that end of it. but one thing i did was over 20 years ago i started doing a korean martial art called taekwondo oh yeah and i started that really as a form of exercise but then also as a stress buster and it's really stood me well down the years in terms of it was a reason to get out of the office and like I, that I remember I used to go directly from the office to the club and I would leave the office early at 6 30 p.m so like you're in at eight o'clock and you feel bad leaving the office at 6 30 the longer I stay the more I'd be expected to stay so Monday nights Wednesday nights Adrian's doing taekwondo so there's no point in expecting to see him after six o'clock whatever um, so it was brilliant to get me out of the office. But the other really, really powerful thing about it is, is that you're learning all the time and it's both physical and mental. So what it does is it means you can't think about what you were doing earlier or what you're going to be doing tomorrow or you'll get a fistful of fives in the face and you're not <laughs> focused, you know what I mean? So that's how it was a stress buster. You weren't thinking about all the hassles that you were putting up with. So I'm delighted. Like I'm a six-stand black belt now. I have a, a school with, a, with another training buddy of mine. We've been training together for that 20 years. So we teach adults in uh, in Black Rock on a Monday evening if anybody's listening and they want to want to come along. So it's it's only adults. You don't have to worry about kids jumping all around the place. But that's been really brilliant for me. And it's a lifelong thing that you can do. Now, obviously, your flexibility decreases over time. 
but the mental part of it, the balance, you know, the confidence you get for it, the, the self-defense element to it. So, you know, there's huge benefits for that. And the other thing I love doing is mindfulness. That's not easy to start with. And there's been a lot of talk about mindfulness and it doesn't suit everybody. Not everybody is tuned in to do it. The other thing is there's a lot of myths as well. So, you know, you don't need to wear a, a toga or go up, up up into a mountain and sit in the lotus position and all that sort of stuff. You can literally do it at your desk. I put it in every day. I do some minutes. I don't do hours of mindfulness meditation. And the thing about the mindfulness is it's it's actually paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally. So a lot of people think that meditation is about getting into some zone or, or falling asleep. It's a form of relaxation, but it's actually a form of connection and bringing you back into the now. And when you think about anxiety, anxiety lives in the future. If you're thinking about the future, you're going to be anxious. Whereas if you can train yourself to be in the now, you can reduce that impact. So that's really, really important as well. And then I just love getting out into nature. I think nature is fantastic. I'm lucky where I live. I can be in the Dublin mountains in, in 15 minutes or I can be down at the Dublin Bay in 10 minutes. And it's just brilliant to get out. The problem is we convince ourselves we're so busy we don't have time for it. Make the time. It's so important. And what you'll find is if you make the time, the extra time you're not able to do things because you're so tired, you'll actually gain back. So <laughs> it's a win-win, I think. Excellent. That's a really nice kind of combination of activities you have there from the Taekwondo to the mindfulness to the to the nature. And you're absolutely right about taking notice of spending time in the present moment. It's probably the, the space we spend the least amount of time, even though we're, we're actually in it all the time. But it's the time we actually appreciate, I would say, the least. You know, we're either reminiscing about something in the past, an action we did or didn't do. Or as you say, we're anxious about the future, something that's coming up, planning or preparing for something that's coming up. Yeah. Whereas actually being mindful and taking the time just to take notice at the present moment, it can be powerful. Yeah. And, you know, there's lots of bumper stickers out there and fridge magnets that are full of wisdom. But I love the one about where human beings, not human doings. Um, but we actually, we prefer to do. So the idea of sitting and not doing something People struggle with because they say that's a waste of time. I should be doing something. But to make that separation, I think, is very helpful. And yeah, it's called a mindfulness practice as well. So a lot of people are looking for silver bullet solutions or magic wands. And the thing about it is, like you will know from physical exercise, if you build up a muscle, that's going to help you when you need to do something. Whereas if you ignore self-care and then you find yourself in a difficult situation, you don't have the resource to, to fall back on. Even your mind is like a muscle. You can work it and you can develop resilience in the same way. So, you know, we're all different. Some, some people think, oh, he's brilliant. He can, can do all these stressful things. But stress for one guy is a buzz for another person. It just depends on what life is thrown at you. But you can actually work on your resilience and protect yourself through self-care. I'd absolutely advocate that for everybody. Brilliant. So you're doing great work advocating for self-care, for positive mental health as well. Adrian, thanks so much for sharing all those details with us today. Where should people go if they want to find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Well, my website address is lizado.ie. I'm on LinkedIn as well with Lizado Services. They're the two main sources, so you'll get everything you need to find in there. So 
happy to help anybody in any way I can. I just think it's so important. Glad to be part of this community as well. Just to give you the, the clap on the back as well, Brian, I think the work you do is very, very important because you bring different aspects of that community together and you create a platform for people to share best practice and so on. Now, that's not always easy because we all love to go and play our own furrow and do our own thing. So I'm looking forward to some of the more in-person events that you've been doing in the past. And I know you're involved in the in the park hit. So just getting people out, keep up the good work as well. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Adrian. Really appreciate it. Talk to you soon. And that's a wrap for this week. Go to workwellpodcast.com if you'd like to access the show notes for this episode quick favor to ask can you head over to itunes or google play or wherever you get your podcasts to subscribe rate and leave a review for the work well podcast it would be huge help so thank you if you want to dive deeper in the area of workplace health promotion if you want to educate yourself in this area then make sure to check out the work well institute it's our online learning hub a one-stop shop for all your workplace well-being training needs. You'll find all the details at workwellinstitute.org. By the way, the original music that you're hearing right now was composed by my good friend, Greg Clifford. Check him out at gregcliffordmusic.com. Thanks for listening right to the end. Remember to work well, stay safe, and I'll see you on the next episode.